Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're looking at God's covenant with Noah. Now, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a binding legal agreement between two parties. Sometimes a covenant comes about as a result of negotiation. Very frequently, it was imposed by a stronger power on a, on a weaker state or a weaker entity. Back in the time of the ancient Near East, the idea of covenants was fairly well known. Around about 1600 BC, the two great nations, the two great superpowers of that time were Egypt and the Hittite Empire. And the Hittites had imposed treaties upon many of the city-states and city-kings that they had conquered. They would conquer a king, they would conquer a state, they would impose a treaty upon the state, it would be called a covenant, and it would state the responsibilities of that state, how much tax they would pay, what benefits they would receive in return like being able to breathe, for example. And of course there would be a section in the covenant which would remind them of what would befall them should they ever be foolish enough to think that they can ever break the terms of the agreement. And historians like to compare the biblical covenants with these old Hittite treaties. But there's a vast difference. The vast difference is that the Hittites didn't own those cities that they conquered. They took them by force. God created us, and so he owns us, and we are his, and he can do with us what he determines, and yet in grace, out of love and pity for fallen, rebellious humanity, we are his. And he enters into a relationship with us, a covenant relationship with us, bringing us into his kingdom, providing us with blessings and with benefits. And he promises rewards for those who obey him and punishment for those who disobey. Generally, Biblical covenants are divided into two sorts. There's the covenant of works, the covenant made with Adam, characterized by obedience to a law. I wonder if we had a quiz and asked anybody what was the law. Would you know what it was? It was quite simple. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. Fairly simple, straightforward law. Do you think they were able to keep the law? Well, no, they weren't. So God entered into another series of covenants, covenants that are characterized by grace. I know that it is one overarching covenant with different dispensations, and I don't use that term in the sense in which dispensationalists use it. The way that God dispenses his graceful covenant to us has changed throughout history. He made a covenant with Noah. He made that with all mankind. 
He made a covenant with Moses, made it with Israel. He made a covenant with David. He made the new covenant, made with all of God's people. And in the covenant with Noah, we see the typical provisions, stipulations of a covenant with all of its benefits and its blessings and its responsibilities. And yet it is characterized throughout by the fact that it is God's grace that determines the contract. Matthew Henry calls this the Magna Carta of covenant theology. The great charter of the new kingdom of nature, which is now to be erected and incorporated, says Henry, the former charter having been forfeited and seized by God. So what are the blessings of the covenant God made with Noah? What are the stipulations? And like all of these Old Testament covenants, there is a sign. What is the sign? Well, covenant security is the first thing. In covenant stipulations, in the covenant sign. So the blessing that God is going to give to those who are within his covenant is security, blessing and protection. Let's pick out some examples of that. The first blessing is continuance. After the flood, God promises that he never again will curse the ground with water. And as long as the earth remains, that there will be seed time and harvest and summer and winter. You see where he says that in verse 21 in Genesis chapter 8. Uh, or verse 22, rather. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This idea of cursing the ground in verse 21. I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. This idea of cursing the ground, never again cursing the ground, has great significance. God cursed the ground after the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, for example, in verse 17, it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And then that curse is demonstrated again in the flood when the ground is overwhelmed by water. And now God is saying, I will not curse the ground in that way again. But look at his reason. Look at verse 21 in chapter 8. I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, when you turn back to the very beginning of the flood narrative in chapter 6, you will see that the reason God brought this judgment of flood upon the earth was because of that very thing. Chapter 6 and verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made mal on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, and the Lord said, I will destroy man. Here's God in chapter 6. And he's saying, because of the evil, because of the wickedness of the heart of man, I am going to flood this earth. And yet here in chapter 8, he's saying, man's heart is wicked and evil, and I'm not going to flood the earth ever again. What has changed? After the flood, the heart of man is still wicked. The heart of man is still just as deceitful as ever it was, as we shall see in a couple of weeks' time. The heart of man is still sinful. Noah's still a sinner. But he's a sinner spurred by the grace of God alone. He's a sinner and a saint to the very day he dies. As Martin Luther would have taught us, Samuel Eustace et Peccator, we are simultaneously sinners and saints. So what's the difference? The difference is that before grace, God was looking at the heart of man in judgment. But now that grace has been dispensed to Noah, God is looking at mankind in mercy, in pity. He's still seeing that wicked heart. But now he's looking at that heart with pity and with mercy. He's looking with compassion and with love. And he's promising that there will be a continuous of nature and of mankind right throughout history until he decides that this earth shall be no more. Continuance. As long as the earth remains, God will never again cause it to be destroyed by water. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. But you see, that would be no good if we weren't able to stay alive. You see, God not only creates us and gives us a length of days and in his providence ordains those days for us. But God also sustains us throughout our days. And so you see that here in this covenant. For it's the second blessing of the covenant security. Not only will there be continuance of this earth and continuance of mankind right to the day that the Lord comes, but God will sustain his creation. Look at chapter 9 and verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Remember the earth that they're being given is, is the, just come out of a flood. It's no paradise. But it's a great blessing. It's a blessing to them. We who've been blessed by God, the reason that this world has people in it who are starving is not because of the lack of blessing of God. It's because of the greed of mankind. Continuance, sustenance. God will not only keep mankind going until the day that he, the Lord comes, but he will sustain us physically through giving us food and 
material blessings. The third aspect of this covenant security is that we will have confidence in him. With great confidence, for God is sovereign over us. Sovereign over the universe, sovereign over the weather, our times are in his hands. The world will never again be destroyed by flood. We are not to be concerned when the global warming alarmists tell us that an extra polar bear has died in the Arctic or there's ten less penguins than there was last year. The weather, the future of the planet, are not in our hands. They are in the hands of the Creator. And we have confidence that he will do what is right with his creation. Look at verse 8. God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, People lived in great fear of a nuclear war, didn't they? Do you remember the Cold War? When people lived every day wondering what would happen if Russia and America opened fire on each other. And people were, there were news reports and there was scares and there was all these different rumors going on. And people lived in terror of what would happen if there was a nuclear bomb. Same thing now with North Korea. The Christian has confidence that my times are in his hands, that nothing will happen to me that he has not preordained, that the Lord will continue mankind until the day that he decides otherwise, that he will give us enough food and material provisions to keep us alive, and that we can have confidence in him. We can't have confidence in men. We can't have confidence in President Trump, the president of Russia. We certainly can't have confidence in some of our local politicians. We have confidence in the Lord. This covenant not only comes with promises, it comes with stipulations. It's not just for Noah, it's for all of mankind. God's blessings, of course, cannot be earned. Noah was spared by grace from the flood. But now that Noah has been spared, God demands a response from those people whom he has saved. He demands repentance. He demands a humble walk with God. He demands obedience and trust. So he lays down some very basic stipulations. Now, whenever you say this, you're going to say that these stipulations are not very hard. They're not very difficult. They are basically stipulations that are given to all of mankind so that the covenant can be continued, so that the, the human race can be continued and they can be sustained and we can therefore have confidence in God. 
Let's look at some of these stipulations and see how they fit in. And let's compare them with modern days. Some very basic stipulations. First one's in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. There is a command, isn't there? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There's something you have to do. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It is our responsibility as human beings. This is not something that's only given to Christians. It is the responsibility of human beings to perpetuate the human race. One of the reasons why, as evangelical Reformed Christians, we oppose deeply the whole notion of homosexual marriage, and it is just one of the many reasons, is that it defies the natural purpose of marriage, which is to be fruitful and to multiply. In fact, the Lord Jesus tells us what's that, what that's about. He says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4 to verse 6, he says, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Just in case anybody's confused. And he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The big slogan of today is love is love. Well, to be honest with you, marriage is not exactly about love, although love enters into it. Of course, we find someone attractive, and we are drawn to them, and hopefully the attraction goes beyond the depths of their skin, and hopefully we are attracted to their personality and to their spirituality, and we want to, we want to be with them, and we come together and we begin to go out together, and we eventually end up being married. And I suppose in some sense that involves love. Nor is marriage about equality. Many people today you will hear talking about marriage equality. Well, marriage is about a man and a woman coming together as one flesh. And the outcome of that coming together as one flesh is to produce children and to replenish the earth. Now, that command is not just for us, that's for all mankind. A man, God created us male and female. Just in case there's somebody who tells you that Jesus never taught anything about homosexuality, here it is. God created them male and female. And a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, shall cling to her, and they twain shall be one flesh. Now that act of becoming one flesh is impossible for two men or for two women. I don't want to go into the details. But to unite as one flesh, to come together as one flesh, 
is intended to produce children and to replenish the earth. And that command is for all mankind. The very first command that God makes with mankind is that they are to be fruitful and to multiply. Here's the second one. And again, it's a very simple and very basic one. This is just to maintain God's purposes in in the world for all people. And it's to dominate the animal kingdom. Look at verse 2. Again, you'll see examples of this today. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And upon every fowl of the earth, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Now, the animal kingdom is ours to be used for food, for service. We lead cattle and we lead sheep into the market and we slaughter them for food. We're the pinnacle of God's creation and we dominate them by right. Isn't there lobby groups today who are arguing monkeys should have the same responsibility or the same rights as human beings or there are i've read about them in the paper there's some uh, court case was going on there for a while about some ape that had its human rights violated they are to be under us They are not to be equal to us. They are to be ours, to be used for food or for service. And they are not allowed to overcome us. In fact, it's strictly given here in verse 5. It says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast. If a bull or a dog or an animal attacks a man, that dog or bull or animal is to be put down and is to lose its life. So the animal kingdom is to be ours. They're not to overcome us, but we're not to be cruel to them. We're not required to be vegetarians, but we are required to have respect for the creatures that God has given us for our blessing. Here's a third of these simple stipulations that God has given to all of mankind. We're all to respect human life. All of us. Verse 5. At the hand of man, halfway down the verse, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For he is, for in the image of God, Made he man. Murder is condemned by the Bible. We're to remember that the scripture teaches us we shall not kill. And the recompense for that kind of a crime is to forfeit the life of the killer. And whether that means capital punishment or life imprisonment in the manner of the USA, where life means life and they lock a man away and they throw away the key, a murderer's life must be brought to an end. Our lives are not our own. They're God's. No one takes them but the Lord. Now, how does that work in with modern mankind? Where you have the abortion people taking the lives of unborn babies 
thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives thrown away, murdered in the very womb where they should have protection. Those that want to introduce euthanasia, not just even for old people, but go one step further because they bring in this law that says that you can, if you're sick and you're elderly and you've come to the end of your life, the doctor can come in and give you an injection. But then that's the thin end of the wedge. And down the road, you're going to be like it is in some of the Scandinavian or or Nordic countries, where if you're disabled, they will do the same thing. Or where if you just decide that you're psychologically incompatible with the world, they'll do the same thing. We are to have respect for the human race. Now you can see that the stipulations made in the covenant with Noah are very, very basic and are the rules for every mankind, every, every part of mankind. Very simple rules. Rules concerning marriage and children, rules concerning agriculture, rules concerning respect for other human beings. How is modern man doing with them? Not very well. Lastly, not only is there covenant security, covenant stipulations, we have here a covenant sign. I'll be finished just in a wee minute. Look at verse 2. Or verse 12, rather. I left out a one on my notes. God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and with every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations I do set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. To seal the covenant, a sign is given. It's always the same. To Abraham, his covenant, the sign is circumcision. The new covenant, the sign is baptism. To Noah, the sign is the rainbow. Now there are some errors that are going around today regarding that. The first error is found frequently within the church. The error is that the rainbow is just about God is love. Whenever you see a rainbow, whenever you see a rainbow, remember God is love. You used to hear the children singing that. God is love. But that's far too simplistic. The sign of the covenant reminds us of all the aspects of this covenant, not just one. The rainbow reminds us that God is love, that God is just, that God is holy. The rainbow reminds us that God has given the promise that he will not flood this earth until the day of judgment when he will destroy it by fire. The rainbow reminds us of the continuous and the sustenance and the confidence that we have in him. It reminds us of the stipulations that we are to be fruitful and multiply, that we are to rule over the animal kingdom with responsibility, that we are to have respect for human life. That God requires a standard from us and that we fall far short even from the very simple standard that's given to us in Genesis chapter 8. 
It reminds us that God still punishes unrepentant sinners. And it reminds us that one day God will bring this sinful world to an end by fire. The rainbow is about the whole of that covenant. The second error is found in the world. The rainbow today is all about the acceptance of diversity, isn't it? Rainbows are really popular these days, and for all the wrong reasons. Some time ago, when the Republic of Ireland voted on homosexual marriage, and there was a victory for the homosexual lobby, and marriage was to be introduced so-called gay marriage was to be introduced in the Republic of Ireland the very day, the very day that the, that the referendum was taken and the vote was being counted, there was a rainbow in the sky over Dublin and the gay lobby were absolutely ecstatic with that. God, they said, if there is a God, they said, has given his seal that he approves of gay marriage. I would have thought it was the very opposite. Because the rainbow is there to remind us of the covenant with all man, mankind. And one of the stipulations of which was that we are to be replenishers of the earth. Something that the gay marriage lobby can never do. And of course, when we think of the rainbow, we have to remember that this rainbow points us to someone in particular. It's always the case with covenant signs, isn't it? Covenant signs are not about me. And they're not about modern trends. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. They point us to Christ. Think about it for a moment. Circumcision. That sign of the Old Testament covenant. That pointed us to Jesus. For in circumcision there was the shedding of blood and there was the putting away of sinful flesh. And baptism points to Jesus as he washes away our sins in his own blood at the cross. And the rainbow points us to Jesus. You say, how could that be the case? How could it be that long ago in the book of Genesis, after the flood, God was already pointing us to Christ. Well, I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. And to Revelation chapter 4 and to verse 3. And then to Revelation chapter 10. But just as we close, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3. Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his, his head. And his feet was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of, pillars of fire. 
And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth, and he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Even back in the days of Noah, the covenant sign was doing exactly the same job as it did in later covenant signs. It points us to Christ. So the flood has gone. And God has established a new relationship with the human race. He has delivered Noah and his family by an act of divine mercy and grace. And as a response, he sets down these simple rules and stipulations. How will Noah and the rest of mankind do as they live in this new covenant relationship with God. 